UX Podcast Episode 305. Everybody. Welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat Axboom. And James Roy Lawson. Balancing business, technology, people, and society. With listeners all over the world, from Georgia to Argentina. And we have a link show today. Yes. And a link show. That is when Per and I, we have, we have checked the entire internet. We've read everything that's been published and we have pulled out two articles that we think are worth sharing with you and discussing. <laughs> and the two articles are, uh, the first one, designing for people with dyscalculia and low numeracy. And you'll hear me struggle with the word, word dyscalculia today, <laughs> but dyscalculia... I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, the article itself is saying dyscalculia. Um, I yeah, I know. But I know that's not how we pronounce it before. I, I it doesn't feel right. Oh, we, we just have to trust them, Pat. Uh, yeah, and that, that um, article is by um, Laura Parker, Jane McFadden, um, and uh, Rachel Malik. Mm. And the second one we've got for you um, is how chat GPT is blowing Google out of the water, a UX breakdown. And that one is by Megan Eng. And it's very topical. It's, it's fun to get something that is so acutely, uh, something that's on everybody's lips these days and, and actually having a UX perspective on it. So a couple of years ago, I, I, I actually don't know how many years ago. Four. Uh, I don't know. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm guessing four. But. You know, you, yeah, you probably you're aware. Uh, I attended uh, an accessibility uh, event here in Stockholm, and uh, on stage was a person who worked with people with dyscalculia, dyscalculia, <laughs> and uh, it was sort of mind blowing to me because this was something I hadn't heard about before, and it, it addressed something that I was not aware of, despite having worked a lot for a long time with online accessibility. Uh, and just a few days ago, you, James, came across this article uh, that um, with a poster describing things you can do to help people with this calculia. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I think it's it's probably for, actually nearly five years ago you, you went to that talk is because I noticed in our, in our planning um, board that we'd added this calculia as a potential topic show back in March 2018. And, and we have actually mentioned it. For those, for those of you that are dedicated listeners and have listened to every single episode, we've talked about it briefly back in episode 196, which was accessibility for designers. And then also again in episode 253, the state of accessibility with Derek Featherstone. Um, but we've only mentioned it briefly. And, and I was, I remember when you first told me about that talk. Um, and I didn't, I hadn't heard of it back then. And, you know, didn't realize... Um, it was a thing. Yeah, exactly. And so this is part of uh, a poster series that P- 
people who work with accessibility probably are aware of that uh, has come out of uh, gov.uk uh, over the years. And so this is like a complement to that poster series. Uh, and it's just lovely. And I think we should probably get on with describing what even is this Calculia. First, though, um, we want to say this um, blog post is um, on um, a UK government blog, um, designing government blog. Um, which they have the, the, the motto for the blog. Um, we believe working in the open makes things better. This blog is for people designing all aspects of public services from local to central government to share their projects, ideas and concepts or just to think out loud. Mm. And the three individuals who are behind this post are Jane McFadden, Rachel Malik and Laura Parker. Um, all three are on Twitter. Um, but one of them, Laura um, is also on Mastodon. And that's how you found the article. It is, it actually. Yeah. Now I found it. <laughs> so, so dyscalculia is a learning disorder that affects a person's ability to do math. I guess that's the simple explanation, but it also, that makes it hard for someone to read, understand, and work with numbers. So uh, you're working with numbers probably more than you think all day long. Uh, you're handling money when you're counting change. You're actually telling and managing time, uh, estimating how long things will take uh, when you're doing stuff. Uh, and percentages, which I know a lot of people struggle with, uh, and just remembering number facts about anything. And I guess years even. I mean, years are numbers. So just uh, understanding when something happened in history is, of course, a struggle as well. Public transport, moving around. There's, yeah. there's, there's numbers absolutely everywhere. Just giving directions to someone, you, you say, so you, you walk 500 meters in the, that direction and people may not even understand what that means. So how does that affect life? Yes, people miss trains. They withdraw the wrong amount of money from cash machines. They get locked out of their accounts because, of course, passwords are a huge problem as well. Uh, and perhaps they sign contracts they don't understand. Yeah, that was actually one, one, of the, one of the parts of the article which really does stand out for me, was talking about financial services and yeah. falling into debt. And um, basically, how can people understand the consequences of what they're getting into if they don't understand their options? Exactly. And you don't even perhaps understand how much debt you are in. Yeah. So, so this affects um, different, or it's, it's actually influenced by different processing centers in the brain. And I, I was doing research and I found this uh, article that also explained that uh, it is affected by uh, visual processing. It's affected by your short-term memory. It's affected by your understanding of language. It's affected by long-term memory, your understanding of quantities, amount, quantities and amounts, and even uh, your ability to calculate. So there are different processing centers in your brain, and each of these can be affected a little, nothing, or a lot. Some, so even if someone has dyscalculia, it may not present itself in the same way as another person who has dyscalculia. And that's, I think, is something important to remember with all different types of accessibility issues is that it's very hard to generalize. I think on top of this, though, what what aspect I like about the article is that it's it's it has an inclusive design feel to it, in that it it, it makes a point of pointing out that it's not just people with dyscalculia that struggle with numbers, that um, low um, numeracy um, can also be a factor in. So so the all those um, different aspects that you listed then, mm. all of them, many of them can also result from low numeracy. Exactly. You don't have to have a diagnosed or an undiagnosed condition mm. to struggle with some of these um, number-related things. 
And there are, I mean, there are reasons you could develop it later in life as well, because that, that would be like acquired dyscalculia, where someone perhaps develops dementia or has some, some sort of brain damage. So it doesn't mean that it necessarily is something that you're also born with. So that means it affects a lot of people. Uh, yeah, the, um, the, the article itself quotes a figure of, of one in 20 mm. in the UK um, and, and makes a comparison with um, dyslexia. Um, dyslexia in the UK, according to the article, says between one and 10 and one and 20. Mm. Um, but that itself is interesting because th- they say a lot of people aren't diagnosed as having dyscalculia. Exactly. So, so the one in 20 is just possibly the diagnosis. I mean, I don't know if that's an estimate or, or kind of officially diagnosed. So you probably can say it's 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 up there with dyslexia as as you know in how frequent it um, appears definitely in in the other research i did i found it affects between between 3% and 7% according to experts worldwide uh, so that is actually a huge number of people and that we probably aren't taking into account the way that we should be and that's why this poster is so very useful uh, and I want to get into talking a, a bit about the way the poster is designed is that it has two columns uh, with the title designing for users with dyscalculia or low numeracy. And the left column says do and lists items that you should be doing. And the right column lists do not items you should not be doing. Uh, Pat, I, I'd liked and I noticed that it says do and do not. Yeah. Not it doesn't say don't. Oh yeah, I, I, I think yeah. they they yeah. de- they've deliberately um, exactly. you know, written out as do not there. Um, it made me think of the, like the um, like no step on airplane wings and stuff. They kind of made the language clearer. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's get into some of the examples uh, in the do column. So what you should be doing: round numbers to the nearest whole number. And immediately I think of pricing pricing pages. Mm. <laughs> Uh, because when you are shopping online, of course, you see numbers all the time. Oh, the, uh, the dot ninety nine has been a has been a classic of um, yeah. many decades to to make you think things are cheaper. Mm. Nine nine dot nine nine. And then this one actually, in this case, it actually um, has the counterpart on the right hand so- side under do not. It says do not use decimals unless it's money. So it, there's it seems to actually be uh, sort of. It's accepted more when it comes to money that you actually can use decimals. Well, it, I mean, there, I think, the article doesn't go into that, but one of the things there, of course, is what kind of price span you're looking at. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at prices of things that cost, um, you know, tens of, of, of pounds, we use mm-hmm. it as a British article, so was it tens of pounds or hundreds of pounds, you probably don't need to worry about pence. So, like, the decimal point, you don't need to say 523 pounds and 43p. Yeah. You can probably round that there safely without causing monetary problems. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you if you're a, a, a one pound shop and you're selling everything that's around exactly, about a pound, yeah. then you can't round it to. Well, maybe mm-hmm. you need to to be more mm-hmm. differential with saying point five. But mm-hmm. and that makes the second point under the do column uh, or in the do column uh, very important that when you're using numbers, leave space around the numbers. That makes it easier to process. So this, I mean, this, does this mean like white space around the whole thing? So you've got to, you know, leave it in a little island of space or? That's my interpretation, yes. Uh, but if you're writing it as, as part of a sentence, 
uh, that's something else because then you're using the sentence to actually provide context and allow people to understand it more easily. And that was another one of the points on the do side. Oh yeah, that's that's a good point. <laughs> Use sentences <laughs> to add context about numbers. So the two of those things go, I guess, go together, or are kind of uh, variations on 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 how to make the the, the numbers more um, approachable. I mean, yeah, that's exactly. the right word to use. Yeah, less difficult to deal with, I guess. Mm. Uh, let people include spaces when entering numbers. Uh, this is an interesting one because that's obviously that pertains to phone numbers, to credit card numbers. Uh, I think that's Post, something that people have debated over yeah. the years. Sorry? Postcodes as well. Yeah. Or exactly. zip codes anywhere yeah. you are. Yeah, I mean, that this type of mm. affordance is, is something that we've mentioned many, many times. And mm. it's... Um, I mean, in usability testing as well, it comes up as a frustration that when you do, you know, you, you enter things like a, a telephone number with spaces in and you get red text and like error messages thrown at you because you've entered it with spaces. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it doesn't make any difference. You can process it afterwards. So, exactly. so here is a wonderful encouragement to, to build a bit of affordance into some of this data entry, mm-hmm. especially with numbers. And, and ask yourself whether you, you really do need to force people to format things a particular way. Exactly. And when you say force, I'm actually looking at uh, the, the last point in the do not column. Do not force people to enter a number or do a sum to verify themselves. Because I think that some some people are actually oh, the are trying to make a point when you do like a captcha, yeah. Mm. Uh, that, you, oh, you shouldn't use all these complicated images. You should just do a simple math problem like two plus three. The thing to remember is that is not a simple math problem for everyone. Because it requires a, a, a processing of things, a language processing of the plus sign and the equal sign that isn't easy for everyone. Yeah, and even though it might mm. it might be um, mentally something that they can do, yeah, being able to interpret it from the page and in the stress of logging in, perform that task. Exactly. It's 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 not as simple as it may appear when you're sat there in a you know sprint planning session and deciding to implement it. Mm. There was also um, uh, another one of the do's um, uh, th- um, was was filling the information you already have. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is which is actually an interesting one. Um, what kind of information are we talking about there? Ooh, that's interesting. Uh, I'm I'm assuming it is because you are already logged in and you perhaps want people to enter phone numbers, account numbers, stuff like that that they perhaps have entered previously in another session and you want to use it again or it could also mean that you've when you're doing a form that you actually mark the forms up in the correct way so that it utilizes the 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 browser's um saved information that you've entered previously yes good point and that's um, part like of address the, line one yeah. address postcode and so on that's part of WCAG, and that you actually should do that <laughs> yes to actually comply with with the WCAG guidelines and it's very useful to make your forms more, oh, well, easier to complete generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so conversion-wise, if you're working with that kind of thing, then you will be wanting to do this. Exactly. And that's a good point. Always remember that people may have third-party tools that contain the data because they don't want to store it with you. But if you do mark up your fields correctly, then that tool will be able to fill in the content for people. I think the final one of the do's was the um, user research. That's, that's um, always the good one. Yeah, with um, people who actually struggle with numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah, always do the user research. Mm. 
which again, we were talking about this this morning, Per, weren't we, about how there's still certain things that get crossed off the list a little bit too often in the rush yeah. to push things out there. And um, sadly, I, I still find that user research is one of those things. It's very true. But also sadly. for people who do user research, this is like another thing to think about as you're recruiting participants and I, that I don't think a lot of people have been thinking about necessarily. The way that you and I were surprised uh, about how how common this is and how much of a struggle it can be because so few people are thinking about it. Mm. So we, there's a couple more of the, the do nots, I think, that we maybe should um, have a little look at too. Um, overwhelm people with too much content. Yeah, that, that one feels like, yeah, well, isn't that always the case? But again, it's such a good reminder that if you don't overwhelm them, then the, the areas of the brain that they're using for processing this type of data, that will go much easier. But it, it's always applicable. And here, yeah, here is, um, I guess, removing unnecessary numbers. Um, and um, oh, if this, if you've put too many, maybe these variants or these kind of different, different um, numbers appearing there, a bill, I think, a, a kind of a utility bill or something is one of the examples they use there. That like you can you can round things or or remove certain um, presentation of numbers on the bill, so it doesn't feel overwhelming as of when when you look at it. Um, exactly. I think we've all probably felt that when, especially with bills that you you look at something and it's. I remember telephone bills back in the day when they used to, I mean, they used to list the numbers you'd ring, you'd rung. In fact, mm-hmm. they still do some of the ones now. And, you know, depending on your contract, you'll show or you send SMSs or text messages to these numbers. And looking at that page is actually quite hard work because it's just a, just just lots and lots of numbers. Exactly. And, and what I'm realizing again, as we always say, that I mean, all of the things that you are expected to do or not do that is outlined here, that would help me as well. I don't necessarily have this calculia, but it will help me because it will make the information processing easier. So it helps everyone. Yet again, when we talked about accessibility and inclusive design, it's rare you make things worse for an individual by applying some of these things. Granted, some things might not convert as well. Because you're not tricking people in the same way or you're kind of not pushing them in the same way. Well, that, something's, I love how you express that. <laughs> that's perhaps a different episode. Uh, so, I, I mean, obviously the link to this will be in the show notes and um, definitely do check it out, print it out, put it up on your wall uh, and just learn things. I mean, I, I love being curious and learning things like this. It's It's... I, things like this, learning them makes me realize there is so much still left for me to discover about mm. how I can improve the web. Yeah, no, this this is, I think, is a wonderful thing to share and a wonderful thing because this is one of those gaps in knowledge. I think a lot of designers probably aren't on top of this. Um, just like me and you weren't really as on top of this until a few years ago when we started yeah. to realize it existed. Yeah. And and the article itself um, basically backs that up too. It says um, that this area is, is challenging because unlike plain language, um, there's little guidance on presenting numbers and data. It is yeah. it is a hole out there. Uh, it's a gap in our um, you know education understanding around this thing. So read this, take it in, and share it. So our second article for today um, is how Chat GPT is blowing Google out of the water. A UX breakdown. Um, and this is an article um, by Megan Eng, 
Um, that was published on um, Medium in the UX Collective. Yeah, UX Collective. Thank yeah. you, Per. Um, vanished there for a second. Um, and I, this last this last month or so, there's there's been an awful lot of of chatter and talk um, about um, chat. GPT. The new version came out um, yeah. in November, and, and not only in tech circles. I mean, no. everyone's been talking about it. I've seen it in like in general newspapers as well. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of um, coverage, hype, mm. discussion, and um, you know, what it's going to take over everyone's jobs. To you know, you know, it's the end of mankind. I mean, there's also been a lot of you know, various um, um, dis- <laughs> debates and discussions. Uh, some are more accurate than others. But what I liked about this or what attracted me to this article on this particular topic was that it had a little bit of a different angle to it, and it or ever it, it it picked up on something I, I myself had noticed and felt when I was playing mm. with um chat um gpt it um it did feel better than a search engine in many ways yeah so that's a cue for me to just briefly describe what it even is. Yes. Everyone will not know what ChatGPT is because you may not have tried it actually, even though it reached 1 million users in only five days after its launch. <laughs> so so ChatGPT, it's like, a, it's an artificial intelligence tool, but it has a conversational interface. You just, you type text and sentences or questions or suggestions to this tool. Uh, and you, you ask these questions in natural language. And the system then, just responds within seconds with something that is a, a paragraph, two paragraphs, or a, like even an essay of content, uh, depending on what query you had. And it's, 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 that's what sort of is, uh, and it's the, the response is so well written and well formulated and seems like it understood your, your question perfectly. And that is what is making uh, waves, I guess, with so many people is that they're not understanding how does this even work? And the way it works, of course, is that this tool has harvested content from the web and from databases for many, many years. It's, it's, it's a, a tool that's been being worked on since 2015, and it's getting better and better every year, of course. And it's just taking content that already exists and learning how to present that to a human being as a response in a way that makes sense. And and blend it, of course. I mean, that's the yeah. that's the kind of key aspect of this. It's 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 sucked in content um, across many languages, uh, many domains, and spotted patterns in it, and spots patterns of whatever you're in our questions, and then pulls out, I guess, new answers or or pulls out answers based on that vast quantity of information it has uh, is disposable. And what many people may not be aware of is if you ask the same question several times, you will actually get a differently worded response each time because it, it is actually made up on the fly. Well, I think you've got to remember the power. It's, it's, it's updating itself all the time. Exactly. Right? So there's a feedback loop there. So every yeah. time you ask the question, I mean, you know, there'll be maybe other people asking similar questions. So mm-hmm. things will constantly be changing as things are, people are constantly using the tool. Yep. Um, so you are, you're teaching the tool as you're using it. That's also important to remember. Yep. Um, so, um, what um, Megan starts off by saying in the um, article is just that people are expressing um, out there um, in forums and social media and so on that they do prefer Chat GDP to Google Search, and mm. she uses Google Search specifically in the um, in the article. Um, and she goes on to list um, three. Three ways, um, in, three explanations, I guess, of, of why that might be the case. Um, 
with a, a, a UX hat on, I guess. And the first one she lists there is um, that it's a frictionless experience. Um, that, or rather, I think you get um, you get a because you get a tailored, uh, written, formatted answer to your query. That differs to the search result you usually get um, on Google. So Google, by and large, is presenting um, little clips, excerpts from web pages to you. Um, and you do have to do a bit of information foraging on that result page to find, you know, to evaluate and to find what is the thing that matches your question. You know, yeah. they're, giving you a, they're giving you a menu of things that might be an answer to your query. Sometimes Google nowadays do actually put fact boxes and so on. They do actually, you know, if you put in, I'll go back to, to numbers. If you put in oh, 10 times 10 in Google, it will tell you the answer at the top. So right, there are certain exactly, things yeah. where it, it's providing direct answers now. But most of it is like pogo sticking, uh, like you open and go back, you open and go back to, to, to make sure that you've read, read and compared different sources. Yeah. I think another thing to remember, um, and Megan actually points this out, um, that we it's a little bit of an unfair comparison, this in some ways, because we're, we're comparing um, Google, um, which is um, a product that sells lots of advertising, um, to one which is at the currently, I guess, a pure tool. I mean, this is just doing um, uh, natural language processing and giving you answers. Mm. It's it's not it's not forcing lots of adverts onto you and other things. So, Megan herself says Google's business model is focused on generating revenue from ads, which class- clashes with the user's goal of finding a relevant answer to their query. As a result, Google, Google often shows paid links instead of providing a summary of the answer. Now, we probably would need a whole separate show to get deeply into in that paragraph about you know, does does a particular organization's business model um, remove it distance itself from the user experience, which is kind of what she implies there that Google can't offer the ultimate user experience because they're needing to sell ads. Which um, is what I'm realizing with this tool as well. I mean, this tool, uh, I mean, it, we can expect it to go the same way as Google because it will require a business model uh, in the same way. And Google was non, didn't have advertisements in the beginning either. No, but but will will it though? Is it forced to go towards ads? Because I mean, what does ads mean in this context? It means that effectively it, it pollutes its, its, its existence gets polluted by that. Yeah, it's the same as Google. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> Okay, maybe it would work, but you can oh. even you can even make it uh, so you don't notice the advertising necessarily. <laughs> I see now that yeah. actually gets into one of the um, you go, you're jumping straight down into um, another know, yeah. one, which is transparency. <laughs> um, this is um, so the first part. We're trying to be a little bit structured there. The first bit um, she talks about um, ways in which why explanations of why people might prefer Google and prefer the um, the chat interface to Google, and then later on she goes on to ways in which maybe you could improve Chat GDP to be even better, and and one of those is transparency. And you know at the moment, uh, Chat GDP doesn't um, it doesn't always it doesn't as far as I've seen when I'm testing it say what its sources are. 
it doesn't oh, always no. sometimes it gives you explanations of why it's or it gives disclaimers or explains things but it doesn't always give its full um reasoning it doesn't it, i've not not noted to give citations in, but you, you generally can, it gives citations and it can, it can even quote stuff that uh, isn't true it can it can cite papers that don't exist so which is interesting as well yes <laughs> um exactly so then when you get into the kind of you know, business model and advertising um if they were baking and if they bake, if they baked in impurities into the answers in the form of ads, that you know, I noticed one. Um, I asked it for um, um, to write some some JavaScript um, yesterday for me, yeah. and in the example code it replies with because it does actually reply with fully functional programming code when you ask these questions. Um, it used car brands as an example because it was it was something that involved like four different cases in this in this JavaScript structure, so it used four. Car brands. So it may even be testing advertising right now. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I, I noticed there were four different <laughs> manufacturers so of four different manufacturers of cars. It wasn't four different models of the same manufacturer. Yeah, right. But you can you can see how there'll be very very yeah. subtle ways of getting advertising to this, which exactly. wouldn't be legal. No, it wouldn't. Unless in many countries, you yeah. uh, in many countries you're actually mm. supposed to um, make it known. I mean, mm. you, like on Instagram, you see it says a paid partnership with because you, you, in certain territories you have to disclose when you're getting paid to That's advertise That's why influencers something. are getting in so much trouble because they're so bad at disclosing. Disclosing, that. Yeah. yeah. And the AI will be would the AI be subject to that because it's an AI. It's not a person. Ooh. Anyhow, moving on. Um, so going back to the, the ways in which um, it, it might be better than Google, um, you've already talked about it, the natural dialogue. Yeah. Um, that it feels like you're talking to a human being. It feels like a real conversation. So, so, so that is just, just that more human feeling of doing this. I'm asking a question. I'm getting an answer back and you can even then come with follow-up questions and it maintains the conversation. It knows the context, where you were, where you've got to, what you've said previously in this conversation. So there's so much that feels quite natural. Exactly. I mean, and, and that's one way of correcting things that it may interpret as, oh, I don't have a good example. So you, you search for something uh, related to Baker, but it interprets as the profession, but you were interested in a person named Baker. And then you actually correct it by just replying to it. No, I meant a person. Mm. And so it, it, when it comes to Google, you would actually have, it would actually have to know more and make assumptions about what you were searching for. Yeah, it doesn't normally mm -hmm. directly connect the next search with the previous one. Whereas if yeah. you would, you'd say, oh, well, I, that's a good answer, but, can, you know, but what about this? And you can yeah. add something else to it. And um, one flip side of this, the natural dialogue side, is accuracy. This yeah. is one of Megan's um, uh, room for improvement things. Is the, the, the way in which ChatGDP replies is very confident. She says, almost authoritarian tone. So it can give the impression of confidence and trustworthiness yeah. that you might not question something because it just sounds so goddamn right. Exactly. And without the citations, the, the sources, the reasoning, you might not for a moment question it. Um, that in itself is risky. Tying again into subliminal advertising or, or hidden advertising. Mm. You know, there's there's a lot of ways this could <laughs> could go out of um, you know. Oh yeah, I man, because it's, we joke about. I mean, anything you believe, you can find a page on the internet that actually describes what you believe as as a fact. 
uh, in this case, you you actually <laughs> you trust the the answer because it's supposed to be intelligent or supposedly intelligent. So it's actually it's it's sort of a confirmation from something that isn't even human. Mm. Yeah. And the third um, point she lifts as as why it might be better is um, its ability to handle various types of inputs. Mm. That's what I really like. (laughs) Yeah, there's an inbuilt affordance here in the in the tool that it's you don't have to spell things correctly. You don't have to have great grammar. You can um, you can you can write stuff badly. You can miss words out. You can spell stuff badly. You know, you spell stuff incorrectly and jumble words up, and it gets it. Mm. Um, you, I haven't tried mixing languages yet, but I know it's multilingual because I, yeah. I, I tested that too. And you can, you can write in various different languages and it understands and replies mm. back. Um, and I really like, based on what we were actually talking about before with accessibility, that this is actually beneficial to accessibility because it means that people don't need to necessarily know the language. They don't need to know grammar. Uh, and I actually tested as we were talking to to asking the uh, the AI or ChatGPT about can you explain what one in five means? And it has a long paragraph where it actually explains what one in five means, which means that it can actually help people make sense of content. Oh right, yeah. yeah. So if you if you haven't understood something that you've read or heard, yeah, you could actually ask it, and it will give you a. It's like a, in that sense, it is like an, more like an encyclopedia, a, a yeah. personal encyclopedia that will. We'll talk back. We'll we'll describe to you an answer and try to explain it more mm. than just a, a Wikipedia page or a search results page. Yeah. It's now I I, I think that, that aspect is really I think there is a lot of uh, accessibility benefits to some of this the way it, um, yeah. can find and present answers. But we've already highlighted some of the dangerous sides of this too. Um, but by and large, I think this is uh, a wonderful thing, and I can I can really understand why people are liking it more than Google, because it does feel like I'm getting served more directly than Google. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's appealing. Um, it's appealing and it's very dangerous. <laughs> but, but for some uh, things, but, and, and you need to understand. So it's like now you need to learn. What can I trust? What can I not trust? When is it useful? When is it not useful? Uh, so there's a learning curve, of course, as always with new tools. Yeah, and you can't use it for everything. I mean, Google still, you know, blows chat GDP out of the water when it comes to certain content discoveries so and new content. Um, when it comes to like maybe searching products, especially when localities are involved, you know, like you know, yeah, find me, hours for find stores, me a yeah. Indian restaurant mm. in Stockholm. Mm. I mean, it, mm. it's. It, Maybe you can answer. I haven't tried that. I haven't tried restaurant recommendations. <laughs> oh no, maybe it. it is good at it. Um, but <laughs> of course, uh, another thing that Google is going to be very good at f- um, is re- telling you where, uh, oh, giving you the uh, location of a specific website um, or destination. Like you know, when you know where you want to find an actual website you want to go to, when you're trying to find the website, then Google is going to hands down be a good tool for that. Yeah, exactly. Did you notice, Per, at the very end of the article um, that she revealed um, that it was ChatGDP that tweaked the title? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Ah, interesting. Yeah, no, so the original, the original title um, of, the, of, the, um, of the post um, was Why People Prefer ChatGDP Over Google, a UX Perspective. Um, and she asked, um, she asked the AI, 
help edit this into a clickbaity title. Clickbaity title. Ooh. And ChatGDP replied with, um, how ChatGDP is blowing Google out of the water, a user experience breakdown. Yeah. So we were, we were baited by We were AI. baited by an AI. <laughs> Driven by of a course. human. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's puppet mastery, isn't it? Mm. But it's, it's, I mean, I, I do really like, this is, this is really, really interesting um, and very, very useful. I've already, I've already in recent times now managed to get stuff out of ChatGDP that I can actually use in my work. Um, I have as well, uh, especially code. Is, is code the, is the thing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I really found it. It's, it's incredibly, it's mind-blowingly good. Uh, you can actually just write a natural language sentence describing the code that you would like mm. and it gives you it so so the whole thing about you know, should designers code maybe not maybe you can actually just know how to ask an ai a question about code that's maybe the skill you need mm. huh. recommended listening we started with the recommended listening pair we did because you had the uh the different times we had actually spoken about dyscalculia as well. Yeah, dyscalculia. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust their pronunciation. Anyway, so yeah, episode one nine six, accessibility for designers, and then also episode two five three, the state of accessibility with Derek mm. Featherstone. Um, they're both really quite related to the first article we talked about. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. So, James, I once knew a mathematician who hated negative numbers. The, the mathematician hated negative numbers? Yeah. She would stop at nothing to avoid them. <laughs>